0: So the first question this evening is how to reconcile consciousness is not self with you are awareness.
1: My consciousness, as I've said many times over during this retreat, is. When we talk about the self, we're we're identifying with condition phenomena, not not with consciousness, and yet consciousness is what we really are. But it's not personal. So you know you can't. As I said before, it's not like my consciousness separate from yours. It's a kind of personal. Identity with consciousness. <clears throat> consciousness, in terms of Buddha Dhamma, is immeasurable. It's invisible. It's infinite. Where the self view, the ego, is very much limited, isn't it? What, you, how you see yourself as a physical form, as a personality, as a manner of woman or whatever, you know, these are very limited concepts that we cling to and and live by But we've seen ourselves in these very limited habit forms of the Sankaras so, you know, when anatta or in the try the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena anicca dukkha anatta you know that's the big question who am i what am i as a you know am i really you know this if i if i ask some of you who are you you, you have to think about it you know, you have to think about, I'm this person from this country, and and ask yourself, what are you really, are you really this person, or, you know, then you have to, and why do you think you're like that, and then you just get caught up in thinking, analysis, which is all sankaras, when whatever you think about yourself is a sankara, So if, you know, if I ask personal questions, you know, then, then you have to think about answers that, that about the limitation of yourself, of your ego, of your physical identities. But if I ask you if you're conscious, you don't have to think about that. when you try to find yourself as a personality, as an ego, then that, you know, then we have to really, who, who am I really? Am I, you know, I, I don't know who I am, or what's my real identity? You know, so many neurotic ha- hang-ups some people have, searching for what they really are. They don't know where they belong, where they fit in, You know, so we seek identities, you know we've join organizations we we identify with religious groups with uh, you know with anything with football teams with anything to have some identity uh, you know some sense of uh, being somebody as a condition because no matter how, whatever you identify with, no matter how good or or unwholesome the identity might be, you know, the what your true identity is, is consciousness, because you're aware. This awareness is aware of not knowing, aware of searching for your real self, is aware of the thoughts about, where do I fit in, where do I belong? And then, so this is why this emphasis on mindfulness, the path to the deathless. So it's impersonal, and we're all in this in consciousness at this very moment. All of us are in consciousness, which is impersonal. But when you try to think about that and then you, you know, you try you start using the creative thinking patterns, you know, concepts and memories and ideas to think about something that is intuitive like mindfulness, intuitive awareness is here and now it's knowing, it's like this the sense of the unity of consciousness is—you can't define it or find it. But you, just by my mentioning this, that consciousness is unitive. We're all in the same consciousness. There's not two conscien- consciousnesses. You try to think about that. You can't really—you know—it's—you you get caught in doubt or confusion, or mental states. And that's where it's trusting your awareness. As you trust awareness, mindfulness, that's intuitive intelligence. That's universal intelligence, not personal. Where personal intelligence, you know, that you acquire, you know, you... Acquire knowledge from books, from computers, from teachers, from school, universities, and so forth. So we, you know, we condition ourselves with knowledge that we get from outside. Intuitive awareness is, is isn't something you get that you're going to get through figuring it out, through thinking about it, through through reading books about it, or forming opinions about it, it's a simple act of recognizing it's like this, this kind of knowing here and now. Are you conscious right now? And you you know you are. You didn't get that from a book, or from a teacher. So this is very direct, it's a very direct knowing. And it's learning to trust it. Because the more you think about it, the more doubts you have. Because of, of thinking, as I said, is the, the, being attached to thinking, trying to figure out the meaning of life, who you are, what, where you fit in, what's your, your purpose in life, and all this. You know, you go round and round in circles. With thinking, but you're still not sure. Because thinking isn't, has no real life to it. It has no, you know, it's an empty phenomenon. That's why you can't, you know, that's why it's not, you can form opinions about good and bad, right and wrong, true and false with thinking but it's all kind of dead, kind of soulless phenomena that you're you're attaching to, so it creates, you know, that attachment is leads to kecha or doubt. And then in doubt, wichikecha when you don't know, you're aware, you know Doubt is a is a is a, is a mental state that is quite beneficial because you stop thinking. But you know, as a person, as an ego, as a conditioned creature, then we we don't you know we we don't like doubt because we want to know. We want answers to questions solutions to problems we want to have names for all the forms you know we want you know it's interesting uh say going to art museums in europe where people in the museum that take modern in london used to like to go there and just watch people deal with modern abstract art you know, you find themselves looking because you know, they have some kind of outrageous masterpieces or whatever you want to call them in this, in this museum. It's called the Tate Modern. And it's, and just as a, observing how people get frustrated with, with forms they don't have names for. So, if you have some kind of abstract painting, and you have a title like Sunset Over Singapore or something like and then suddenly you're, trying, you're told what it is and you start seeing it. But if it just says, number 10, you know, and it doesn't have any particular form to it, you think, I don't know what that means, what are they trying to say? Child of two could do better than that.
0: <laughs> the next question is um, about merit, punya. Could you speak about the nature of punya and? how to relate to it in terms of mindfulness and awareness?
1: Well, whether, you know, the ego... This is this is what the ego does with the word merit, or boon, tamboon in Thai. Is, uh, the ego wants to make merit uh, in order to you know, accumulate something for themselves. So, you know, like in to, to give Donna to monks and so forth, that can be done from the ego of just trying to accumulate a lot of good actions. That's done from the ego. You want a reward. You want to get something back from, from generosity. so you know you can pray on this you know young people if the more generous they are the more merit they make and in their next life they'll be reborn in deva realms or you know this is like uh, you give requisites to monks and you make a lot of merit and the more you give the more money you donate to the sangha the more merit you have. That's strictly from the ego level. So that's conditioning. That's not real merit. So in paramita, in when you're developing it's it's sharing what we have with others without the desire to get any reward or even acknowledgement. And so when you're training as a monk, you know, it's quite interesting, you know, going on bindabat and alms round and things like this. And the American ego, when people put food in your alms bowl, you, you know, you, you immediately want to say thank you. And then I was told, you don't say thank you because you're rewarding them with gratitude and they're just giving this for the sake of giving, you know, kind of diminishing their merit. (laughs) It's a totally new concept for me. Because in America you say thank you for everything. And that's cultural, isn't it? Cultural differences. But Dung Cha was always emphasizing to, to the lay community that were his supporters about, you know, dana barmi or merit-making is to give without expectation for reward, even a thank you, even acknowledgement, you know, just to, because it's it's a wholesome thing to do, to share what you have with others. But the, notice the, the personality, the ego really wants to be rewarded, you know, like, even if we don't say thank you and we, we don't even look at you, you know, the, the attitude is you're making merit, you're getting something for this generosity. So that's why it's important to, to be aware of that, you know, to be aware of what the ego really is. It's the desire to get something Desire to get rid of something. Desire to, you know, like making merit can be that we worry about when we die, where will we be reborn? And so, you know, there's a belief in reincarnation or rebirth. Then there's six realms of existence. You know, so the Deva realm is the desirable one where everything's beautiful. Nevas are, have ethereal forms. They don't have gross bodies. They, You know, they have a kind of ethereal bodies made out of some kind of ether. And so they don't, you know, they don't have to be reborn in these kind of coarse animal forms that we we are in right now <laughs> and <laughs> so that, that's very that's a beautiful kind of image of an ethereal form and like a deva you know you can't imagine a deva perspiring or coughing or, <laughs> or any kind of the functions of the human body these are images of perfection you know like Deva Loka they have form they're beautiful forms they live a long time so that's the one realm then the Asura realm the power hungry gods and they're always jealous they're jealous their nature is to want power and they Hate the devas, so they're always trying to fight off the devas, and because the devas are beautiful and play harps and enjoy everything, and uh, and these asuras are power-hungry, you know, like modern politicians, and they want to get the wealth of, you know, the wealthy people. You know, accumulate as much money as they can, taking the wealth away from the rich. And are well, these power-hungry asuras They're still kind of deva-like creatures. They they don't have co- coarse bodies like human beings. Then we get the human realm, and that is you know with then we have to deal with the physical body. Of an animal with the uh, awareness you know we have this 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 is the realm where you know you aren't reborn if you if you meditate and realize the Dhamma you're not born in any realm anymore. And, uh, the fourth realm is the animal realm, which is ignorance, lacking in intelligence, and so forth. Then the preta realm, which is the hungry ghost realm. This is a realm of a, like drug addicts, alcoholics, where you, you no matter how much drugs you take, you have to have more. You're never, you know, the the image of a preta is one with a with a mouth the the size of the eye of a small needle. It's got this tiny little mouth and this long neck, long skinny neck and this huge belly the size of Mount Everest and so it's continuously hungry because you can't how much food can you put in this tiny little mouth to feed this enormous body. It's like a hungry ghost, a pretta, they're called hungry ghosts. So, you know, like, you can see that in terms of drug addicts and people addicted to substances that they, you know, they, sexual addictions and things like this where they they come. They, you know, they're just totally obsessed with some kind of... Uh, State that, that they can never really fulfill, you know, what, no matter how much you get or how much you take, you still want more. And then the Avice Hell is, uh, like the, uh, usually presented by either fire where you're eternally burning in eternity or freezing to death. So it's utter, unmitigated misery. So you notice that these are images that we create, humans create, the six realms of existence. And in Salas and that, it's, uh, in Thailand, and Thai Tha- 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 monasteries you see pictures of these. And so we, you know, these are representations of states of mind. Don't think of, you know, to try to figure out where the Asura realm, the Deva realm, and and so forth. These are imagined kind of realms, you know, that you create some kind of, you know, imagine a, some kind of Deva realm up in the sky, or whatever. Or hell is something way below, and in some miserable cavern... But, in terms of you know the advantage of the human birth, you know this is a seen in terms of Buddha dhamma is this ability to reflect to be mindful, so we have the bodies of animals you know so we we you know we you know we can be seen as some kind of a more developed ape or monkey <laughs> but we we're conceited enough to not want to have to be looked down on that kingdom as inferior because we see ourselves as superior to the animal kingdom what is superior then what is the, what is that that makes us different from just the being a higher kind of ape is the ability to reflect on reality, to realize Dhamma, ultimate reality, ultimate truth, the absolute. We're not just caught in the forms that we're born into, in the physical bodies, and and you know without any escape, without any way to get outside this limitation of our physical form. Or outside our own mental creations, like as human beings we can live in deva-like states of mind, developing jhanas, developing refinements of taste. You know, we're not just gross, coarse creatures, just survival of the fittest and eating and procreating and sleeping but we can develop refinements of conditioned phenomena, arts and science and so forth. So, you know, we have this intelligence, this retentive awareness, we can we have language and how do we use all these gifts that we have in this birth is it for the ego, for personal advantage, for the firm conviction that you know you want to be reborn in a in a better place in the next life, or you know you know as you as long as you identify and make your identity with the sankara, with the physical body, then that you're being reborn all the time as a Separate person. So even, you know, this sense of separateness, you feel lonely, you feel, you can feel isolated, you feel fear of losing your friends or your husband or wife or your children, you know, there's, there's always this fear of being separated from what you love because We recognize a possibility that's an ever-present possibility of loss. So our dependencies as a human individual separate form in the universe is a lot of fear, anxiety about the future. Because our identity is with something unsatisfactory, the human body the personality we attach to. And this creates this this separateness except me from you. We see ourselves in isolated ways. And so the fear of loneliness, being left alone, unloved, rejected, being poverty-stricken, Homeless. These are all great fears and possibilities that that we all have. you know, that could everything could go wrong, and we lose everything, or we might, you know, be lucky, and may you know, and live a happy life till we die at a hundred years old. But the future is unsure. You know, it's imagined. It isn't, you know. It's, the future is is imagined. It's not real. The past is what you remember from this life, memory, and now is the knowing. So the mindfulness is is about now, trusting in this awareness. It's like like this at this moment while we're sitting here in this very moment, it could only be like this. It's, you know, it's a truism. You, you can imagine it could be different, but in the reality that this moment, each one of us is experiencing from where we are physically, this moment is like this. And so it's a way of getting in touch with intuitive awareness with the heartfelt intuitive abilities where which are embracing the moment rather than trying to make it better or or, you know, being caught up in in being critical or wanting it to be different, being attached to our desires. So even if we have desires at this moment that were different, we wish at this moment to be different where that's the way it is we're aware of that so this awareness isn't something that is personal but it puts into perspective your separate identities as a separate personality a separate physical being so that's enlightenment or liberation realizing what you really are. You're not a a physical body, animal body, uh, you know, you're not what you think, you're not what your emotions, your emotional habits, you're not that. But you are this, this awareness. This is a fact, this is not just, you know, supposition or metaphysical preaching. And so, this simple question of asking yourself are you aware you you are aware you know that and then through reflection not only like the buddha dhamma the teachings the four noble truths a full path but some dependent origination the four foundations of mindfulness The paticca samuppada. All these are skillful means, directional signs. What are they pointing at? You know, when you, what are the four four noble truths? Where are they, you know, the external things you, you memorize or paticca samuppada, dependent origination, is that some kind of a very super intellectual Buddhist theory, or is it philosophical? The four foundations of mindfulness, very interesting. Or what? What are they pointing at? It's about here, this intuitive awareness. So they're they're not about intellectualizing Buddhism in terms of trying to philosophize and. And uh, make it into a philosophy or a theory, but it's a very kind of direct pointing at the here and now. Until you know you keep, you know you keep trusting your awareness. Eventually, you you find that that's what you are. You know it, it's with you all the time, so it's not something that you get on a meditation retreat and then lose. So, when you leave this retreat on Sunday, if you, you know, you might think, I can't meditate at home. That's, be aware that that's a thought you have in the present. You know, so you you think you can only meditate on a retreat, or on a kind of formal uh, arranged situation, is another idea, another thought. So, and this awareness of thought is not judging the, the thought itself as right or wrong, but it, you know, awareness is aware of thinking, is uh, something arising and ceasing, something arising and ceasing. So, whenever you think about yourself, whether you see yourself as in positive terms or negative terms, it's only thought, it's not what you really are. That's why I encourage you not to believe what you're thinking. So, this book that has been published, Don't Take Your Life Personally, some of you have read it, and uh, It was, uh, it was published by a private group in England, and so it's for sale in Amazon, like, so it, it, you know, it's kind of difficult to give it out for free, because the, the people that published it won't give us the copyright. But, um, uh, in the years that I lived in England, uh, for 18, 19 years, I'd go every summer to a summer school, a Buddhist summer school in Leicester. And, uh, and so it was, uh, in mostly English, uh, Europeans would come and they'd have Tibetan monk or Zen monk and myself. So I was the kind of Star of the summer school for about 18 years. And, and it was, I really enjoyed it because it was in the a, a botanical garden of Leicester University it was a very beautiful place. And, uh, I'd have the whole morning, they'd give me the whole morning to reflect on Dhamma. And they recorded these, these reflections. And so this book, Don't Take Your Life Personally, was uh, was edited by these people mm-hmm. and uh, that were in charge that managed this and arranged this summer school and published it. Uh, and they, they gave it the title, Don't Take Your Life Personally, which I think is quite an interesting reflection. Because we do, we see our lives in... See ourselves as separate persons as, and we, we take it all very seriously. Our lives, what we think, and our fears, and our emotional habits, and so the very personal, very intimate. They seem to be full of a sense of me and mine, separation where awareness isn't about separation, it's about the way things are. At this moment, you know, no matter how you're feeling, whether you're feeling very personal, intimate, separate from everything, or you're feeling at one with the group, or whatever, you're you're aware of that. And I'm not saying how you should feel, I can't, you know, if I start telling you how you should feel, that's that would be very misleading and wrong because we can't help the way we're feeling right now but we can be aware of it feeling is impermanent you know, that when you're feeling happy, sad, interested, bored restless, worried, thinking about the end of the retreat, you know, it's like this you can know, and it's the words, it's like this, is not Is a way of thinking that isn't judging it. It's it, because whatever you're feeling in this moment is the way it is. And then this knowing of the way it is, is not criticizing it. It's not saying you should feel a certain way or what you're feeling is good or bad. It's It's like this. And he's learning to trust this this reality of intuitive knowing of the present of con- because the, the conditions are changing. Everything, you know, the world we live in is all about change, arising, ceasing, coming, going, birth and death. But whatever state you're in, your physically, mentally, emotionally, trust the awareness, it is the way it is. And by doing that, by trusting your awareness, then you can deal with the emotional habits you're experiencing or your fears and and the sense of your separateness, your loneliness, your your, your isolated sense of self, your fears about the future. These arise and cease. And as you affirm your true identity as awareness... You begin to, you know, you find that it is not just deluding yourself with some kind of ideal, you know, some kind of high-minded ideal. It's the reality that we're all sharing at this at this moment.
0: Another question is uh, regarding wichikicha, doubt, as Lumpo has taught, arises from thinking. How is that different from ehipasiko, encouraging investigation?
1: So, ehipasiko is, is intuitive awareness, it's not thinking. Thinking is not investigation. You know, you, to analyze, you think. Analysis is, your, you know, the thinking process. But a pasiko, or mindfulness, isn't, isn't about thinking. It's aware of thinking. So now, wuchikita, you know, if you begin to intentionally ask yourself impossible questions, you stop thinking. So just like, what is the meaning of life? And you know, if I ask any of you right now, what is the meaning of life, you'll stop thinking. Before you can answer that, then do to, to you know, then maybe you come forth with some intellectual explanation, you know, the meaning of life is to realize the Dhamma and be free from all suffering, you know, then that's quoting from the scriptures and where you know, what is am I practicing in the right way and then your thinking mind stops but you're aware of not thinking doubt it can be used as a technique in Zen Buddhism they have these these conundrums, these koans which create doubt and the intellect can't answer the, these deliberate d- doubting koans you know like what is the sound of one hand clapping or what was your original face before you were born if you try to think about that, try to find some intellectual response to that question, the Zen master whacks you on the back with a stick. So no matter how clever you might, intellectually might be, that's not what, that's not what what the koan is for. Until you realize non-thinking So what is the meaning of life? And it stops the thinking mind. What is my, my original face before I was born? Stops the thinking mind. Who am I? You, you're thinking, you know, you, for that moment, when you ask a question, there's no thought, and but there's still awareness. Empty conscious awareness. So like doubt in, in Zen Buddhism is used as a, a helpful means, a skillful means. And in Mahayana Sutras they have the Diamond Sutra which is, you know, all about doubting. The development of doubt. So you know this is why, in the, as a as a uh, fetter, the third fetter. You know, it's it's using the thinking process, not you know, in order to stop thinking. But so you're interested in in in. When you ask yourself a a, a question, you stop thinking before you start trying to answer, form an answer to it. And this is a way of noting, recognizing emptiness, conscious awareness without thought in it. Because it's you know consciousness awareness is all the time present where thoughts come and go according to conditions. So consciousness isn't you know with Ahi Pasiko Dhamma you know come and see investigate. It's not to to analyze your feelings or analyze. Thoughts about Dhamma are intellectualized, but to observe. Puto, tamo, sanko. So Buddha, Dhamma, is, is reflective awareness. It's, it's investigation. It's, it's not analysis. It's not intellectual, psychological analysis. So you know, in the scriptures, the Buddha never asks why there's suffering. This, when you ask yourself, why do I suffer? Why do I get angry? You know, then you you're on the road to analysis to figure out why me, this person, this separate person, why do I suffer like this? What's wrong with me? who is the who, what were what the causes originally? you know so you you go to a psychotherapist and discuss your problems which you know so you're kind of trying to somebody's trying to help you to figure out why you're suffering because you think that suffering is caused from outside or that it's personal, like your suffering you experience is very personal, there's something wrong with you, that if you were normal, healthy, psychologically fit human being, you wouldn't suffer. That's not Dhamma, this human realm is about suffering. Sankaras are about suffering. So don't take it personally, suffering is some kind of personal flaw or aberration or there's something wrong with you but see it as a noble truth to be recognized suffering is caused through this not not being mindful but grasping sankaras and then expecting to find happiness from them because they, they'll all disappoint in the long run. Sankara, that's their nature, their n- nature is dukkha, anicca dukkha So if you're grasping sankaras, you know, out of ignorance of dhamma, you're not mindful, you're not aware of what you're doing, you're just a creature of habit, grasping at this, grasping at that, trying to control things. Then you know your, your life is going to be, they, you know, you're going to feel you're suffering, you're lonely, there's fear, anxiety. So awareness and is non-self because you don't create it. It's not personal but it's knowing. And it's getting to recognize this the, the reality of knowing here and now is like this, which is not judgmental, not critical, not personal.
0: What about this uh, notion of ...needing to develop a sense of urgency in the practice?
1: Well, uh, you know, if you see that here and now is where is practice... ...if you think you... ...you know, if you create the idea you've got to be here and now, that can sound urgent... ...but trust your awareness... <laughs> ...of this sense of, you know, the urgency, but... There is a sense of, you know, this is this, this lifespan that we're experiencing. You know, we're, we've already been born physically, as not as physical beings. And in the future, got, these physical forms will die. We know that. And then between birth and death of these physical bodies is enlightenment. So on Misaka Puja Day, it was one of the big Theravada celebra- celebratory days, we celebrate the birth, the enlightenment and death of the Lord Buddha. And I found this very, you know, this is a very you know, to an American with common sense, how can you be born on the same day, enlightened on the same day, and dying on the same day, this is this is just too neat a package. (laughs) And this is the Western mindset, you know, thinking. But as a subject for reflection, it's really good. Because you know, this is, it's not about historical accuracy, you know, that actually Gautama the Buddha was born on some day in May or April and was enlightened on the same day years later and then died on the same day years later after enlightenment. That's taking it literally, you know. So, you know, the scriptures aren't, necessarily historically accurate but they're more like useful for reflection metaphors or ways of of contemplating and so just to to reflect that we've already been born as physical human beings we're going and we know we're going to die in the future so now is the knowing now is the urgency of knowing before death, before we die, uh, you know, enlightenment is, for us, is possible between the birth and death of these physical bodies. So the reason why you're here, all of you, is because you're awakened to this this sense of urgency, you know. It, interest in Dhamma, you know, you think of ourselves as Buddhists. Many of you were brought up in Buddhist countries with Buddhist cultural backgrounds. And so, you know, you think of Buddhism in terms of traditional forms of Mahayana, Theravada, Tibetan Buddhism and, and like that, these are the external forms that we call Buddhist, or Buddhism, but in all of the forms, the existing forms, you know, the teaching is about Dhamma, the way it is. So the Buddha didn't teach about Buddhism, you know, he is he, teaching Dhamma the way it is. And so that's the the immediacy of the teaching, it's very direct. So, you know, the idea of putting it off till later, be aware of that. You know, do you think you still have plenty of years left be- before you need to get enlightened? Don't wait till the last minute. In other words.
0: When you talk about the first three fetters, you talk about how children haven't acquired them yet. How can parents help in that context?
1: Well, that's an interesting question on, you know, raising children. So, you know, when you're young, young child, you're innocent. You don't know anything, like a newborn baby is conscious in a human form, human form in consciousness rather. So then, you know, but it, it doesn't, it can't reflect on itself here. You know, it has no memory, no language. But it's you know it's fully con- the same consciousness we're all experiencing, but the form is is still innocent and and uh, easily and it's going to be influenced and conditioned after it's born, so we get you know we acquire the values and the uh, cultural values religious values the beliefs and prejudices and biases of our parents but when people really want to know how to raise children I I think some of you have had much more experience at it than I have (laughs) But, but you know the sense of in the early years of love acceptance you know because of the innocent nature of, of young children they easily believe anything absorb whatever is available good or bad so you know encourage you know the them to be honest and like moral precepts are good but not from the point of of uh, just you know you're going to hell if you tell a lie that kind of uh intimidating form of moral uh, fearing the result of committing a sin, but getting people to realize, you know, children will realize, they they can reflect on the results of their actions. So I remember in my own experience, uh, when I was a young child, I picked up the cat, we had a cat, and by the tail, and my mother, you know, said to me, you know, would you like somebody to do that to you? And and I thought, no, no, I wouldn't. I didn't have a tail anyway, but <laughs> just to be kind of manhandled, picked up in a brutal way. So, she, you know, my mother and... Was getting me to reflect. Is that a good thing to be doing? You know, would you like to be treated like that? So it's like, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, the, the golden rule. And, it, and you know, I always respected that because after that I never did that again. Or if my mother had scolded me, how nasty little boy, how can you treat a, our beloved cat like that, you're a sinner, and then it would have been different, i have been fear-ridden, and then I'd pick up the cat by the tail when my mother wasn't around. (laughs) So that's the wisdom, you know, I remember that vividly, because, you know, I was very young then and had no sense for what I was doing. But you know, I could be aware i didn't I wouldn't hate to be treated like that myself, so suddenly I saw the cat as a sensitive form rather than just something for me to pick up anywhere I wanted to and do whatever I wanted with it, and so you know guiding children through their various stages. Of childhood and adolescence, puberty, with a sense of uh, loving kindness, compassion, realizing the the difficulties uh, that children have to deal with in changing from growing from children to adolescents and to adults, rather than seeing just you know putting laying down the law and making value judgments. It's more like intuitive awareness that that w- results in metta, karuna, mudita, equanimity—the four ramaviharas.
0: And the last question is about how to avoid attachment to the formless states. Don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> That's strictly intellectual doubt. Try to attach to a formless state. and uh, It's not, you know, you read about getting stuck in formless realms, but if you trust awareness, you know, you're not choosing formlessness over forms. Awareness allows forms to appear and disappear. Or if you're, you know, to, to get kind of mesmerized into a kind of formless state, you have to be an absolute control freak. And live alone in a, as a hermit. But in terms of daily life, you know, we have to deal with relationships, with our vipaka kamma, so it's not an attachment to a refined state of concentration, but it's open receptivity, embracing life, not trying to control it. No and live in a in a realm of refinement which demands ultimate kind of control without mindfulness so mindfulness is the path to the death, it's it's the escape hatch from the samsara, what from the world of forms Ideas, intellectual opinions, views, emotional states, pleasant pain, physical conditions, old age, sickness, death, when we see that we're not the body, then there's nothing to fear because if you if you really define yourself as a human body, you know you're, you're just going to get old, get sick, and die. That's not very, uh, you know. That's what we oftentimes most fear. Death is is a mystery, you know. When you're attached to, to the to the sense of yourself as a human form, that's all you know. You you never investigate it. Never look any more, any, any way deeper than just I'm this this limited physical body that's going to die, that can be very, you know, frightening, because death, we haven't died yet, but we know that, that everybody's going to die, but that's not politically correct, talk about it, like at parties and social engagements, death is not usually the subject that you're talking about. You're talking about, you know, holidays and making money and social things, entertainments. But when you talk about death, you know, that can really put a damper on a interesting party. <laughs> and yet we know that these forms are going to die, because that's what they're supposed to do. So in awareness, you know, are you really this form? Really investigate this, ask yourself, are you really just this human body? And Then you don't have to come up with an answer, but trust that when you ask yourself that question, the awareness that's still there, that you don't know what you are, you don't have to know what you are, you are the knowing itself. You can't find yourself as an object, you know, as a concept, as an object that you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. But you are consciousness, And that is the deathless, that is consciousness doesn't, isn't born, dies. The senses, you know, can deteriorate. Seeing, hearing, smelling, as you get older, your vision changes, your hearing diminishes, you can lose your memories and you have these senior moments and all kinds of things change, you know, that you strongly identified with. But are these really what you are? Your memories? Your knowledge that you acquired? If you lose, you know, if you have forget, forget things? Are you really just, uh, you know, a bundle of emotions and, and memories? And this awareness is not frightened, because it's deathless. And so, it, you know, and this in my own experience, of, over the years, training in this form, and first, you know, then I would, I operated from, I'm this physical body, I'm this proper and and I'm, you know, Theravadan Buddhist, and operated from the conventions because that's all I knew you know, that's how my c- conditioning operated but then the, you know the teachings of the Buddha were investigating a kind of investigations. am I really just this this physical body am I really the, you know a propferang is that just a you know, that's the Thai word for, for a monk. You know, is, am I really the, these titles, these names, this personality which changes? And pretty soon you begin to have insight into what you really are, is this awareness. Because it's with you all the time, no matter, you know, what you're going through on the personality as a physical physical body